Thank you, Hunter. When uh, Jessica told me that Hunter was going to be reading scripture, I went and read what scripture I had picked out and thought, well, that's uh, sometimes a challenge for an adult to read that text, but um, great job, Hunter. Um, with the being the first Sunday of the month, uh, I, I meant to mention when I did announcements, again, just a reminder that we changed the order of service as well as part of our first. And so... Um, here comes the message, right? Um, with a time of communion and response at the end to celebrate what God has been up to. I'm going to be fighting this microphone. All right. Um, but we are nearing the end of our on-the-job training sermon, sermon series in which we have been figuring out what it means not to know information about Jesus, but to learn to live like him as we follow him, right? On the job, be disciples, apprentices, for Jesus to be our teacher, our mentor. Um, a few moments ago during the announcements, I asked you to imagine a Thanksgiving meal, right? And so I'm going to ask you to fire up your imagination again. Think of a Thanksgiving meal, um, because Thanksgiving is coming, right? And I want you to think of what your favorite food or, um, I guess, beverage, but food item for Thanksgiving, the favorite smell, right? Can you, the favorite taste of something, the favorite, can you, what's, and feel free to shout out, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? Pumpkin pie, pumpkin pie, <laughs> mashed potatoes? Jello. Jello, all right, I'm with you, I'm with you. What's that, Robert? Cranberry sauce, okay. Beans? Yeah, all right, I don't think that's true. All right, thank you, Finn. Uh, <laughs> All right, so you've got, you've got that smell, that taste of your favorite thing in your mouth, in your mind, in your imagination, right? Uh, it's so close, you can almost taste it. Um, now, what I want you to do is forget what it tastes like. Can you untaste the pumpkin pie? Can you untaste the mashed potatoes? Can you unexperience the jello <laughs> or the cranberry sauce? Can you forget what it tastes like? Even if you wanted to, you can't forget it. Sometimes you eat something and you're like, oh, I don't like the taste of that. You can't forget that you tasted that. You can just acknowledge that you didn't like that, ex that taste experience, right? You can't forget the taste or smell of something. All right, so we can't do that. So what I'm going to ask you to do instead, instead of forgetting it, is just remember that you are a human being corrupted by sin and that you cannot trust your senses. So maybe you can't forget what it tasted, but maybe you can convince yourself that you tasted it wrong. Pumpkin pie doesn't actually taste like pumpkin pie. Or cranberry sauce doesn't taste like that. You can't trust your taste buds. You can't trust your experience with those tastes and smells. Right? Maybe it was awful, but you just convinced yourself it was good. Maybe you talked yourself into it or you wanted to like it. Because your emotions, your senses, your desires can all deceive you, right? We're, we admit that. We're fallen people. We're corrupted by sin. We don't know everything. We can be tricked by things. So maybe your experience of Thanksgiving is just your mind tricking you or maybe other people manipulating you to make you think you like Thanksgiving. Um, and if you're sitting there thinking right now, Pastor, this is the most ridiculous thing you've ever said or done. I, that's a pretty high bar, but um, this is ridiculous. You would be right. 
you wouldn't apply that conversation to Thanksgiving dinner. You wouldn't say, well, I, I don't really know what pumpkin pie tastes like. Because you have, you've tasted it. Whether you like it or not, you know what it tastes like. And, and you wouldn't say, well, I don't trust my own experience with that. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm just flawed or corrupted by sin. It sounds ridiculous when you talk about Thanksgiving dinner in that way. Um, or maybe let's move away from Thanksgiving dinner for a moment because now I've got everybody hungry. Um, think about significant days in your life. Well, it's just what we're doing right now. <laughs> Think about important days in your life where um, it, was an, it was something that was significant, something that you, you fall back on, you remember well. Now, can you pretend that you didn't experience that? Can you unremember that? Uh, the birth of a child. Can you look back at that memory and say, well, maybe that didn't happen? Can you look back at your wedding day and say, I'm manipulating myself, I'm distorting my memory. It wasn't what I thought it was. Or maybe it was a high school graduation or a college graduation, a day of, of celebration. Can you look back and go, maybe I can't trust my memory there. Maybe it was a terrible experience and I've just convinced myself it was good. Why am I asking this? Well, I'm trying to point out the fact that we rely on our experiences to help interpret our current situations and help us to understand what's going on in the future. We rely on our experience to help us understand what is going on around us, right? And so in this sermon series, we've been, we've been following stories of Jesus for the most part. We jumped into some of the, the New Testament letters um, and explored some of what uh, Paul and some of the churches were doing, but we spent most of the time focusing on what Jesus was teaching. Well, this morning, we're going to kind of jump way back in time before Jesus to the book of Job. And you might be saying, well, in a sermon series about following Jesus, why would we look at the book of Job? Jesus isn't even mentioned there, like he's not teaching. How can we find anything in the book of Job? Well, we'll we're going to figure that out here in a second, so just, just hang on. So the book of Job, we're going to be in chapter 19, verse 23. Uh, through 27, just a few short verses. They'll be on the screen or there's Bibles under the chairs there if you use a Bible app on your phone or whatever. Um, but read Job 19, 23 through 27 uh, a little long with me. <laughs> oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, and in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see on my side, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Um, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we come here this morning seeking truth, um, seeking uh, not only information as truth, but seeking you as truth the revelation of how things are and how you would have them to be. Um, Father, we pray that you would use this time to speak to our hearts and our minds um, and that you would continue to shape us into a community of faith. Um, Father, we bring with us our own stories, but ultimately you are knitting together together 
one large story in which we all have a part, and we're grateful for that. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So in this little section of Job that we read, it doesn't tell a lot about what's going on. There's not a whole lot of narrative here. And so some of you are familiar with the story of Job, but for those of us who maybe aren't as familiar, we'll do just a real quick recap. So the book of Job is about this man named Job who had a tremendous amount of wealth. He had a lot of comfort as well. He had the riches of life. He was wealthy. He had a big family. He had all the things that anybody in his day and age could ask for. The Bible says he was righteous before God, so he was in good standing with God. Um, He had lots of animals, uh, livestock. Um, He was doing well for himself. Life was good for Job. But then in this weird story, there's a conversation between God and the accuser, the Satan, the one that accuses, like there's a lot of different ways that that's interpreted, but God's having conversation with Satan, this is so weird, in which um, God allows or causes all of those good things to be taken from him. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, we're not going into a theology of the devil today, that's not what we're trying to do, but just know that there's this weird conversation between God and the Satan, where basically the accuser says, yeah, Job follows you, he he, he worships you because you give him good stuff. You take care of him. You give him the best. And if, if he didn't have that, he wouldn't follow you. Like, that's the accusation made. And so God allows all these things to happen to Job. Uh, his children uh, die. Um, his livestock dies. He gets very sick, and he has sores all over his body. Like, he loses everything. And at this point in the story, he starts getting advice. First from his wife. In a very loving, encouraging manner, she says, why don't you curse God and die? Um, She got kind of tired of the complaining and grumbling and just said, just curse God and die. Um, His friends show up. Three friends come from a, a distance away to come and to comfort him. And they basically... Uh, tell him that it's his fault, he must be sinning, and he should confess his sins. Um, So the advice he gets really doesn't help him out. Curse God and die and confess your sins because you're, you're the one that caused this problem. And so the book of Job kind of is this conversation that happens. Initially it's a conversation between him and his wife, then it's a conversation between him and his friends, But then Job starts having this back-and-forth conversation with God. And Job is not shy when it comes to this conversation with God. He basically lets God have it. In his anger, in his frustration, in his disappointment, he kind of shouts at God. Um, And he actually struggles to keep his faith. He starts questioning, "Why, why are you letting this happen, God? What is going on? What did I do that you're causing this to happen. And so he lets God have it. And in turn, God lets Job have it. (laughs) Um, God's response to Job's accusations and anger shows up in chapter 38. 
He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Basically, who's God here? Like, this was the response, right? So Job's upset. He's, he's angry. He's frustrated that his life just took a left turn and everything is wrong and he blames God and God says, if you understand what's going on here, then you'd be God, but you don't, so you're not, right? So much like the message that we had a few weeks ago where Pastor Tabitha shared about Jacob wrestling with God, this is a story of an individual kind of engaging with God and wrestling. Um, There's some scholars that believe this is a symbolic story of Israel's relationship with God, especially in light of the... uh, the exile, where Israel, God's chosen, gets conquered, and the land is taken from them. The temple is destroyed. They're unable to worship how they want, and they are physically and forcibly removed from their land. They lose everything that God had given them and are forced to live in a foreign land. And so there's a symbolic element to the story of Job. There's some people that think it represents, symbolizes God's people that have lost everything in this exile. Because the question comes up, what do you do with a God who lets your home be conquered? What do you do with a God who lets the temple be destroyed? What do you make of a God who allows your people to be taken from your holy land into the heart of this evil Babylonian empire? What do you do with a God that allows evil and suffering? What kind of God lets terrible things happen to his people? And as we read the story of Job, and especially when you're hearing the the negotiation between Satan and God, you're sitting there thinking, what kind of God would allow Job to suffer like this? He didn't do anything wrong. So there's this back and forth between Job and God. This is kind of how this whole book happens. This conversation, and it, it, it looks like at some point that Job is really just ready to be done with faith. He's just reached his point, this God, I, I, I've had enough. Like, life is not what it's supposed to be. I'm ready to be done. Why would I follow this God if this is how life turns out anyways? If this is what life looks like, why would I follow this God? But then we hit this, this verse from today, verse 25 specifically. Right? Job, in the midst of this yelling at God that he's doing a terrible job of being God, that he's disappointing and that he's messing things up, Job says this in chapter 19, verse 25. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last he will stand upon the earth. So there's still a lot of the story left, and Job, after saying this, it's not all puppy dogs and rainbows. He doesn't suddenly have this great faith and and has come back to God and said, oh, I'm sorry, I messed up, and, and life goes on in, in, in greatness. No, like this was just a moment. In the midst of all the up and down, Job confesses. I know my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. So where, did, in the midst of all this chaos and suffering and destruction and illness, where did this confession of trust come from? How did Job have this moment of confession where he says, I am confident, I have faith, I can, I can have trust that God, in the midst of all of this, my Redeemer lives, even though everything's going wrong. 
And like I said, to be fair, this is only a moment of hope. Job kind of moves on past this and goes back into despair and frustration at various points. He's, he's struggling hard through these circumstances. He's trying to understand, again, his, his faith in light of his life. But in this one moment, in the midst of all the hardness and the darkness and suffering, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. How does he know that? How can he make that confession in the midst of everything that is going on? He lost his, his children, his, his livelihood, his livestock, the land, his own health are gone. It's taken from him. His wife says, why don't you just go off somewhere and die? His friends say, this is your fault. You're getting what you deserve. Alone, isolated, suffering. In the midst of that, he says, I know. My Redeemer lives. Somebody that's going to make this right. How in the middle of this tragic story does Job find something to hold on to? Was it because somebody once wrote down on a scroll and read it aloud in the synagogue that God is good? I mean, maybe. Maybe in the back of his memory banks he has this memory of, of, of somebody reading a scroll that talked about how good God was. But in reality, there's something more going on here. Prior to this whole story with Job, prior to everything going wrong, the Bible tells us that Job was blameless, he was upright, and he was fearing God. He was righteous before God. What that means, in, when you read that in the Bible, what that means is that Job had a relationship with God. He was in good standing with God. So when it says he's upright and he feared the Lord and he was... Uh, present with God. He was blameless. It meant that he had a relationship with God, right? He knew God prior to all the troubles because he had experienced God's goodness before. Job knew his Redeemer was alive and present. He knew he could trust God in the moment, and he knew that God was real because he had experienced life with God before. In the midst of trouble and suffering and the darkest of days, Job's experience with God shaped how he saw the present and what he expected to happen in the future. Trust for today, hope for tomorrow as it goes. So what would Job have to say to us today? Um, I've shared this, this story before, but I, I, I can't remember if I've shared it since our two congregations have come together um, when I was a young uh, high school student, um, middle school, high school student, I went to a, a, a church um, near, my, near my home. It was the church that I found faith in um, where I was baptized. Um, I was active in the youth group. Um, it was in that church um, that I had my opportunity to, to preach for the first time. I learned so much of what it means to be a Christian in, this, in that church. Um, and when I was a, a recent college grad with my pastoral ministry degree, just starting seminary, working on my master's degree, um, the pastor of that church was accused of some impropriety. I don't, even now, some 20 some years later, I don't know all the details, but um, he resigned. Um, 
and the entire board resigned. They didn't want to mess with this. They, everybody just walked away. And there I was, uh, basically like the assistant pastor there. And I was being mentored to be the next lead pastor. My, the senior pastor was closing in on retirement age, and the plan was to transition at some point. Um, he was going to mentor me, help me grow in my pastoral ministry experience, and, uh, and then we we're going to kind of flip-flop roles. Like at some point, I would be the lead, and he would take a, a more part-time role and kind of scale back. Um, but then he quit, and everybody quit, and uh, it all went off the rails. And um, I was pretty confident before that moment that, that my future was in that church. Our family home was just on the road, and I figured that's where I was going to live, raise my kids, and I was going to work at this church. Uh, it was in my hometown. It was in my, the community I grew up in. I cared for that community. I loved this church. And everybody quit. Um, that church asked me, the remaining parts of the congregation asked me to be the interim pastor while we figured things out, and I did that. I said yes. And after a while, they asked me if I would just drop the interim and become their senior pastor. And I did. And so now I'm the lead pastor of my home church that had gone through this huge heartbreaking situation that, again, I still didn't know all the details of. But it was this heartbroken church that remained, people that had been hurt and confused and really just searching for, for healing and hope, trying to figure things out. And over time, people kind of dropped away. Um, the lingering effect of that split, of that conflict, just kind of made life hard in the church. And so people would move on, either they'd go to a different church or they'd quit going to church altogether. And eventually it was just a small group of us. We'd meet Sunday morning for worship and sermon and prayer. Sunday nights we'd get together and we'd have a meal together. Um, but it just was the slow dying of this church that I loved. And uh, at some point after th three years, I, I got a call from a pastor of another church down the road that was growing. And they were looking for a space. They, they rented a storefront. The pastor lived in a, basically an apartment above the storefront. And they were looking for a place and they wanted to know if they could rent our building on Sunday nights and do their worship services at the night when we weren't there. And so I gave them a tour of the building and walked them all around and everything. And as I was doing that, I, I knew that I knew that God was telling me um, that their future was in this church and mine was not. And so I went to the board and we talked about everything and letting them take over the church and on paper we we merged and became one church and then I stepped away and this other pastor and this other church moved in um, but I found myself after years of saying yes to this call to ministry I found myself without a church uh, I had withdrawn from school because the workload was too hard to try and manage all of that and uh, I, I had no idea what was next I had no idea, like, I remember writing in my journal that this must be some sort of terrible cosmic joke. 
Because I went from knowing that I knew that I was going to pastor this church, I was going to live in this house, I was going to minister to my community. And I didn't know any of that anymore. And I was tired, I was confused, I was broken. I felt lost in every sense of the word. I knew that I had done my best. I had done everything that I knew to do as a young minister, but I still felt like a failure. I mean, isn't it every pastor student's dream, ministry student's dream to go to their home church and shut the doors? Like, I felt like such a failure. Shame and guilt and a sense of inadequacy. And there were no answers. The road just stopped in the most unimaginable way. And I didn't even know what to put my hope in at that point. Like, I, I, I had a hard time praying because I didn't even know what to ask for anymore. But I had a few Job moments along the way that I know my Redeemer lives. And it wasn't because of anything I was doing. It wasn't because I had a great prayer life because, honestly, I had trouble talking to God. I got tired of asking the same questions over and again, so I just kind of quit. I struggled to talk to God. And it wasn't because I went to the Bible and the Bible's words reassured me or or gave me promises that I held on to because, honestly, the words on the page were drowned out by the voices in my head. But I knew that my Redeemer lived. I knew my hope was still in a God that was present and real, not because I had an idea about God or because I had memorized some Bible verses or had facts, but because I had experienced the presence of God in my life. I had experienced, I had tasted the Thanksgiving meal and I could not untaste it. I could not forget I had experienced it and and no amount of doubt or fear or sense of maybe you're just convincing yourself. Like I could not let go of this sense of what I had experienced. God had been real in my life. God had touched my life not only with ideas but with experiences. And when I first started to preach two services a Sunday morning or Sunday, I did a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening service uh, as a young pastor, when I first started doing that, I experienced a grace that I had never known before. God was showing up and meeting me. My sermon prep was not great. I had so many other things going on. I didn't have the experience or the knowledge or the know-how, and I can't explain it, but I knew that God was using whatever sermon I prepared each week in, in ways that were beyond what should have been the outcome. There was a grace and a mercy and a peace that I experienced every Sunday, and I knew that it wasn't just for me. That God was using that yes that I said in, I don't know if it was naive, you know, just being young and naive or innocent or ambitious or whatever. I said yes to do this thing, and I knew that God was using that to bring peace and grace to those people that came and sat in those pews every Sunday. And it was humbling. It was powerful. I knew that God was present with me even in these hard times. But before I ever preached a sermon as a lead pastor, I had an experience with God where he called me into ministry. Um, And it wasn't an audible thing where God like wrote it down on a piece of paper and I read it or I heard it like with a voice in my ears or something like that. But I knew that I knew that I knew that God was calling me into ministry. And it it shaped me as an 18-year-old college freshman 
in such a way that I changed everything I had plans for my future. And if it wasn't for that experience, if it wasn't for the certainty of that calling, I probably would have walked away from this church that closed and walked away from ministry altogether. Because I was so lost, I did not have a plan for myself. I did not know how to put the pieces together again. But I couldn't walk away. And it wasn't willpower and it wasn't determination. I couldn't walk away because I had experienced something so real and so profound, so life-changing that I couldn't unexperience it. Before that moment, and I know I've shared this, this story before, but there was a moment where I was at my dad's graveside as a 16-year-old praying, just, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And I heard God's voice say, oh, ye of little faith. And so I went home from the cemetery mad at God, and I looked up where that verse comes from, and it comes from Matthew chapter 6, and it's, uh, the rest of that scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be taken care of for you. God was alive and real to me in, in ways that I had never experienced before. And I thought I knew a lot about God. I grew up in the church. Right? I was a good youth group attender. I was a good Bible student. But it was these experiences, these moments where God was most real to me that has shaped it. It wasn't doctrine. It wasn't uh, biblical laws or principles that held me close to God in these moments. It was real life experiences where God showed up. Why does all this tie into our on-the-job training? Well, discipleship in some ways has become a technical word for a very particular type of teaching that we do in Christian circles, right? Discipleship is kind of synonymous with Christian education. Like discipleship happens in a classroom with, uh, with books, um, the church has programs that are intended to teach information about God and Jesus and the Bible. But in this series, we're talking about being disciples who make other disciples, right? I want to make sure we aren't just talking about giving information, transmitting information, but, but instructing people uh, not only in the knowledge of God, but the experience. Inviting people to taste and to see the goodness of God. Because when things get hard, and they will, when the world doesn't make sense, when things make you question what kind of God is our God, or whether God exists at all, it won't be information about God. It won't be a, a doctrinal statement or some universal principle that brings encouragement in these hard times. It will be our personal experiences with God and the life we found in them that will call us forward. It's those things that will give us hope, that will remind us, as Job said, our Redeemer lives. Doubt may creep in, fear may take hold of us, we may not know the very next step we should take, but we know that God is real. And we know that God is present because you've had that experience with the living God before. And so that brings us to the one truth that I want us to, to, to walk away from uh, this message with this morning. If you forget everything else I've said, remember this. Our experiences with God in the past can give us strength for the moment and hope for the future. So as a pastor, I'm not asking you to know more about God. I'm in trying to invite you to taste <laughs> the goodness that is life with God. Well, 
How do we experience God's presence with us? For me, I've tried to simplify it down. There's a lot of different ways, but I've tried to simplify it down to three different ways in which you can experience God, which you can know that God is present and encounter God's goodness. The first one is worship. Spending time together like we are today, not only singing songs, that's obviously worship, but prayer is worship. Scripture reading is worship. Gathering together and acknowledging our love for God. You can experience God in these moments. And when life is hard or difficult or challenging or confusing, you can draw back on this gathered body and say, oh, I've experienced God. I may not know what's going on out here, but I know that God is present and real. So worship is one. Another one is is through Christian fellowship, through connection, through love of others. As we gather in Sunday school classes and small groups and gather around tables and and drink coffee uh, before and after service, as we share meals together in Christian fellowship, we not only experience the love of each other, but we experience God's goodness through those God has gathered us with. And another way we can experience God's goodness is through service. Have you ever heard somebody say, I want to go serve, but I really feel like I was the one that was blessed in return? I want to go to this mission trip. I want to go to this this, uh, charity thing. I want to go serve to give somebody else something, and I walked away receiving way more than I felt like I gave. It's through Christian service that we can experience God's goodness. And so that's kind of our emphasis here. How do we build these experiences that we draw on? How do we get close to God? I'm not saying don't learn about God, but I'm saying like as the church, we need to have personal relationship with God, not just information about him. As a church together, we work to invite others to develop these practices that provide real relationships and real encounter with the living God. Our experience with God in the past can give us strength in the moment and hope for the future. When dark days come, difficulty comes, confusion comes, I want you to be able to go, I remember when God was with me, when I felt God the closest. And one of the ways that we do that as a church, one of the ways that's supposed to be kind of baked into the life of the church, is what we're doing today, communion. Communion is meant to be a regular experience with God's goodness, a taste of God's grace. Communion is not a a dessert, it's not a special treat for special occasions, but it's a regular part of our lives. So that when we find ourselves on hard days and dark times, facing difficulties, wondering what God is doing, we can speak the words that Job spoke, I know my Redeemer lives. And so we come to the table of the Lord today to receive the goodness of his grace.